If you have your Bibles, you can open uh, to Ephesians chapter 2 is where we'll begin, but we'll spend a lot of time going through the book of Romans and several passages there. And as always, we'll have everything here on the screen. If you've got the Bible app, you can follow along there. Um, but as John mentioned, we had a... Um, we had an orientation class yesterday, and it's been a while since we've done one of those, and um, it was good for me uh, to go through it again, because it was uh, several things that, that I had written several years ago as a, uh, you know, a statement of what we would be about. And of course, those things are still a part of who we are and what we've been doing, but it's good to just kind of have that refresher of, of what this was really all about. It reminded me of being a part of something that I knew I was already a part of. There was no question that I was a part of it, but it just reminded me of how it all began. And, and some of the, the guiding principles, some of the, the, the foundational beliefs that we had as we were forming a church together, and just to refresh my memory of what we were feeling in that, at that time. And this morning, I hope that as, as we go through these passages of Scripture together, I hope that for most of you, this is a refreshing, a remembering of where you've been. Today, what we're going to be talking about is how does one become a member of the church? Not necessarily a member of this particular church. What I'm saying is the church universal, the church of Jesus, the one that he set up, the one that he established himself. How do you become a member of that church? What does it mean to be a part of the church of Jesus? And so today, what I want to first and foremost tell you is that to be a member of the church of Jesus is you have to be saved. You have to belong to him through salvation. And so today I want to talk to you about salvation. And, and if you're a saved person today, if today you know I am going to be in heaven forever with Jesus, and there is no question about that, that you have confidence of that, then this is a refresher for you. And let me encourage you that you still should pay very close attention. Because it's a, a refreshing, it's a reminder of what you've already walked through. And whenever you have that reminder, it encourages you to pass it on to someone else. To tell your story to the next person. And so we're going to be walking through several passages of Scripture that could be useful to you sometime whenever you need to share your faith with someone else. And so I want to share these things with you. But we're going to begin here in Ephesians chapter 2. And Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, as Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, he says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Sorry, I got a little ahead of y'all and wasn't switching the slides for you. But by grace, we have been saved through faith. All right? If you're a saved person today, if you, are, if you belong to Jesus, that was a gift that was given to you. By grace, you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. The first thing that we have to point out is what he points out here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 9. He says, not as a result of works. Our faith distinguishes itself from every other religion in the world in this one very critical way. 
that there is no way to earn your way into heaven. There is no possible way that you could do enough good deeds to secure a spot in eternity. If you study much of the other world religions, um, they may have some testimony of being saved by the work of someone else, but it's also dependent on you and the things that you do. And your life is constantly on the scales of doing enough good deeds to outweigh the, the bad deeds, enough honorable actions to outweigh the dishonorable actions. And according to the scriptures, our salvation is not a result of works. Now, do we do good works? Absolutely, because we are his workmanship, and we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. But it's works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. But our salvation comes first. We walk in good works because salvation has already come. So, how does that happen? What, what does it mean to be saved? And, and what does it look like? And if I was sitting down with someone today and, and I was going to share with them, most of the time what I do is I have a Bible with me whenever I'm sharing, whether that's a physical print Bible or if it's just on my phone. But what I'll do is I will show them scriptures. And, and I have found this to be a whole lot less threatening, a whole lot less, uh, I don't know, contra- uh, what's the word I'm looking for? confrontational, thank you very much. Um, It it just kind of flows a little bit more as a natural conversation. Whenever I find the verse and then I hand it to them and I ask them to read it out loud. Now that's a little intimidating the first time they do it, but most of the time it's, it's not me telling you what it says here. You can read it for yourself. And I believe that the scriptures are written in a way and and God has prepared them in such a way that whenever we honestly open the scriptures and we read what it says, we can understand what God's message is to us. So often I will start with John 3.16. And I'm going to put it here on the screen. I want you to read John 3.16. There's going to be an awkward silence. Probably most of you have heard that verse before. Many of you know it by heart. All right? But then I would let them read it, and I would ask them to read it out loud with me or or to me, and I would say, so what do you think that verse means? What's it saying? And if you read that verse of Scripture, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. It may not be exactly the way it's written up there, but I have... Heard this verse in many different translations growing up. But the message is the same, no matter which translation you've opened up. It's that God loved us. He loved us enough that he was willing to give his son for us. That's a tremendous amount of love. There's not a lot of people who love anything that much. I don't think that, I mean, I love chocolate ice cream, but I'm not going to give my son for a bowl of chocolate ice cream. Right? And there are a lot of things that, that we love, and there are some things that people have paid sacrifices. You know, some people, they love their country enough that they're willing to let their sons go off and fight for the country. There's always that hope that they'll come back. But God loved the world so much that he gave his son to a sure 
future of death. He gave his son to die in our place. It starts, first of all, with love. God loves us. Loves us enough that he was willing to give his son. And so if God loves us, he wants us to live forever with him. But there is a problem. And then I'll turn to Romans 3.23. Read this one. And I'm going to ask, what does this mean? So this verse very briefly says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what does that mean? And here we usually have a discussion on what is sin. And most people know what sin is. He's dying to tell me. What's sin? Something that's... Okay, something that you do that's wrong, right? And it puts a a barrier between you and God. It, It separates us from God. We'll get to that. But for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means that God is perfect... And every one of us, as much as we might try to be perfect, we all fall short of perfect. We all miss that mark. And anybody can read that verse and know what that means. In our culture, we know what the word sin means. You might find somebody somewhere who's not as familiar with what that word means. But most people know, for all have sinned. And so it's it's pretty easy to say, what does all mean? It means all of us. It means I've sinned and it means you've sinned. None of us are perfect. None of us have done everything right. And so for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The next place I will take them is Romans 6.23. Read this one. So this one says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, if it's a young person, I've spent a lot of time with young people, we usually have to talk about that word wages. But anybody who's had a job and looked at their, their pay stub knows wages, that's the money that I earn. I showed up to work and I did a job and the wages are what I earned for that job. So it's a payment for what you've done. And it says the wages of sin is death. The payment that we have earned through our sin, all of us are in that boat, is death. But it says the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So the same verse that tells us we have earned death also tells us that God has given us a gift. The gift that he gave us is through Jesus, his son. And how did he give us that gift? How did God demonstrate his love to us with this gift of eternal life? Romans 5.8 says this. Go ahead, read it for yourself. It says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
And remember, we just talked about the fact that the wages of sin is death. And what Christ did is he died in our place. He died for us. Why? So that we could have eternal life. Christ died in our place. There's a really big word in 1 John that says he is the propitiation of our sin. That just means that he is the payment in full for our sin. Because Jesus was perfect, when he died on the cross, he could take your sin. He could take my sin. And then he could exchange that for his righteousness so that we could have eternal life. So if all of that has been done, if if God loved us enough that he sent his son and his son died in our place even though we were deserving of death, what do we do in response to that? In Romans 10 it says this, and this is two verses, so I'm just going to read both of these. It, It says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. If you go back to Romans 10, 9, it says, Confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. So the first issue a lot of times for people is belief. Do you believe that Jesus really was raised from the dead? To believe that, you first of all had to believe that he died. And to believe that, you have to believe that he really lived. You've got to believe that he was the son of God who came to this earth and, and lived among us, that he died on the cross for our sins, and that God raised him from the dead. It's not just a fairy tale. It's not just some you know, metaphysical metaphor for life. It really physically and spiritually happened. If you really believe that all of this took place, the second thing is that you have to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Now the scriptures say in James that even demons believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And they tremble. Belief is not enough. It's about claiming him as Lord. It's about recognizing him for his rightful place. So to confess Jesus as Lord means that your life is now his. That you will do with your life whatever he instructs you to do. It's that recognition of I am a sinner. And I have no hope of saving myself. And if I'm a sinner earning death. But Jesus gave me a free gift of life. Then I'll do anything for him. Confessing Jesus as Lord is more than just acknowledging him as the best alternative. Some people today call themselves Christians because they like Christians better than they like some other denomination or some other sect or some other religion in the world today. Well, I'm a Christian. It fits me best. No, that's not what makes you a Christian. To confess Jesus as Lord is not just, I'm more comfortable in this kind of church. No, to confess Jesus as Lord means my life is now his. And I'll do whatever he calls me to do. I will go where he tells me to go. I will do what he tells me to do. I will change my life and conform it to his will because he has done everything for me. To confess Jesus as Lord is is way more than just acknowledgement. It takes us to a point of recognizing that 
we were sinners destined for hell, destined for separation from God for eternity. And unless Jesus died in our place and took the penalty of sin upon himself, then we would have no hope of salvation. And when we do that, we acknowledge him as Lord. We say, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do because you have done everything for me. I would have no hope in and of myself. His word tells us that it's not by works. It doesn't matter how good a person you are. It doesn't matter what you have done in his name. What matters is, where is your heart in relation to Jesus? Have you really stepped off into faith in him? There's that classic example that people use where they say that you can believe that a chair can hold you up, but you have faith whenever you sit on it. There's a lot of people who believe that Jesus can save them from their sins, but they haven't taken that step of faith to trust him with their life. What the scriptures call for, what it tells us is that those who are really people who belong to Christ are those who have put their whole faith in Jesus. They're not trusting in their own works in any way. They do good works because they want to please him because he's done everything for us. It's a sign of our love for him because of his love for us. But salvation is from the Lord. And it's when we put our faith, our whole faith in him, that's when we know that we're saved. In Romans 8, verse 14 through 17, it says this, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Scripture tells us that we're adopted into the family of God. When we put our faith in Jesus, we become a part of something much bigger than us. We become a part of a family that extends through all generations. We become children and heirs of the creator of the universe. That's what God is inviting us into. When we confess Jesus as Lord... He welcomes us as his brother or his sister. We become a part of the family. Listen, it all begins with the love of God. And if you are a member of the church today, if you are a member, when I say church, I'm talking about universally. If you are a Christian today, you are a part of a big family. Because God made it possible for you to be invited in. God made it possible for you to have that kind of standing with him. God has adopted you as his child. 
What a blessing it is. What a comfort it is to know that we belong to the family of God. That we're not slaves of our Lord, but instead we are his joint heirs. We're not slaves of God, but we are his willing and happy servants because we are his children that he loves and has bestowed great blessings upon. So to be a member of the church, the first thing is you have to be saved. You have to acknowledge that you would have no hope on your own of saving yourself, but that Jesus made it possible and put your full faith in him. Now, there's one other thing that's given to the church. And, and this comes from the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2. Now in Acts chapter 2, just so that you know the, the story of what's going on, Jesus came and he lived among his disciples. He died on the cross. He rose again and appeared to them. He taught them several other things and he instructed them, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And he, and he tells them to baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and teach them to observe all of his commandments. And then he ascends into heaven, but he tells them, go back into the city, and I want you to wait there because I'm going to send my Holy Spirit to you. And when he comes upon you, you're going to have power and boldness like you haven't ever had before. And so they're gathered together, and they're, this is the day of Pentecost, and they are up in the upper room gathered together, and they are praying. And all of a sudden, as if tongues of fire appeared above each of their heads, they are, are overcome with the Spirit of God. And they begin to speak in languages they didn't know. And a crowd gathers because they hear the noise and the commotion, and they start listening, and they recognize, I can hear my own language from these, these Gentile, or not Gentiles, from these, these Galileans, these people who are just kind of from the sticks, these fishermen. And yet they're speaking my language fluently. I understand perfectly. How is this possible? And then Peter stands up and he delivers a message. And at the very end of his message, as he preaches to them about who Jesus is and what God has been up to, at the very end of his message in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, he says this, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He says, you knew that the Messiah was coming. You've heard the promises that there was one who was coming from the Lord and that there would be people who rose up against him, and it was Jesus. He was the Christ. He was the Messiah, the one that you just crucified. He was the Messiah from God. It says, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. They didn't get angry with Peter. They didn't get defensive no, the Spirit of God spoke through Peter and it pierced them to their hearts. And it says, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Now listen, if you are a believer today, I'm guessing that there was a time where you heard a presentation of the gospel message like we just went through. Where you heard the, the, the testimony that you're a sinner and you have no hope of salvation in and of yourself. And that Jesus died on the cross and there was something in that message that pierced you to the heart. And you recognized your need for a Savior for the first time. And you, like these people, said, what must I do? Listen, that is the Spirit of God drawing you to himself. 
He wants you in his family. He wants you to be a part of his kingdom. And he's inviting you to surrender. And this is what Peter said to the crowd. He said, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So he tells the crowd to do two things. First is repent. That word just means turn around and go the other way. You were headed off in this direction. You were living for yourself. You were living as if your salvation depended upon you. And he said, repent from that and trust in Jesus. Turn around from what you were doing and follow after Jesus first and foremost. And second, be baptized. Now this word has a, a, a very specific meaning to them. This is a word that they were familiar with because they had seen several things in their day. One, there were people who were not Jewish who did not come from the, the descendants of Abraham, who saw the Jewish faith from, from a distance and wanted to be a part of it. These were called proselytes. And a part of becoming a proselyte was, we would baptize you into the Jewish faith. What it was was a ceremonial washing. It was a ceremonial... The word baptize means to be dipped or to be dunked. And it, it just means that we were going to show that there is a change happening and you are becoming a part of our faith. And then John in the wilderness, just at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he is preaching about repentance. He is telling them, listen, we need to get ready for the Messiah is on its way. And we need to be ready for his arrival. So repent, turn around from your wickedness, and be baptized. And people were being baptized in the Jordan River with John. And when Peter stands up and he says this, each of you be baptized. He's saying, I want you to be identified into this belief. I want you to, to stand up and say, I'm all in. I'm a part of this. Paul, later in his letter to the Romans, talks about baptism. He says this in Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? And he's just made an argument that even though we sin, God's grace is always sufficient. In fact, the more we sin, the more God just lavishes grace upon us. And so he's saying now, shall we, are we to say that let's just continue in sin so that we get more grace? He says, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And what does he mean by that? What, what do you mean that we died to sin? He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? He says, therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. He says, if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. And if you jump down to verse 11, he says, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. What Paul is pointing out is the, the symbolism brought into baptism. That whenever we are baptized, we are saying, I identify myself with Christ's death 
his burial and his resurrection. I had a minister one time explain it to me this way. He said, what, you can kind of see it visually that here you are standing in the water. The water's here. And that identifies you with the death of Christ on the cross. He says, then we're going to take you and we're going to put you under the water. And that identifies you with the death of Christ. And then we'll raise you back up out of the water as a symbol of the resurrection of Christ. Saying that the old you is being done away with and you are raised as a new creation in Christ Jesus. The scripture teaches us that we have a new identity whenever we belong to Christ. We are adopted into that family and we are made a part of the family of God. And so Paul is saying, listen, we need to consider ourselves dead to sin because that's what we were saying when we were baptized. The old us is gone and we are raised to walk in a new way. And what did Peter tell the crowd? He, he told them, he said, <clears throat> Repent and be, each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it's that gift of the Holy Spirit living inside us that confirms to us the, the salvation that has come. That's why it says the Spirit himself in Romans, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Listen, God gives and gives and gives. What we do as, as believers is we are baptized to say, I am all in. It is a public expression of our internal belief. We are saying, I identify with Christ this way. I'm going to tell you a story from, from the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 8, we're going to read this together. What's, what's happening in the church at this point is that they've had a lot of people come and to believe, and the religious leaders are really getting nervous, and they start to, to crack down on these things. And there was a guy named Stephen. He was one of the first deacons of the church. And Stephen, at, you know, he begins to speak one time. He's out in public, and he begins to preach, and he's saying some things that are really offensive to the religious leaders of the day. And they entice the crowd to stone him. And so they, they drag him outside the city. They begin to throw rocks at him. And he looks up into the sky and he sees the Lord. And he, asks, he prays for their forgiveness as they stone him to death. But because of this, the church kind of has to go underground. And so they're, they're kind of hiding out. They're being secretive. And Philip at, at one point is praying. And it says this in Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, get up. Go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. And so he got up and went. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. Most likely he was a proselyte. He was one who had seen the Jewish faith from a, a distance as an outsider, and he had recognized the power of the God of the, the Jewish people. And so, and here he is traveling from Ethiopia all the way up to Israel to worship there. Now, this is, this is a, a period of time where, where that was a, a common practice. And, and so he's there, and now he's headed back home, 
And God sends Philip so that their paths will cross. It says he was returning and he was sitting in his chariot and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. And Philip ran up and he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and he said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to, to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearers is silent, he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and he said, Please tell me of whom does this prophet say this? Of himself or of someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth, and, he begin, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. I would love to hear that, that sermon. I'd love to see what all Philip brought into this discussion. But he said, listen, the prophet was not speaking about himself. That prophet was speaking about the Messiah who was to come. And let me tell you about some events that just took place a few months ago. There was a man named Jesus. And he was put on trial before Pilate, and he never opened his mouth. He was put on, on trial, and all he said was, yes, essentially. You say that I'm the king of the Jews, you're correct. But he doesn't make a defense for himself. He doesn't argue. He doesn't try to run away. He just submits himself to being crucified. And he was the Messiah. He was the one that we'd been waiting for. And by believing in him, we can have salvation. And Philip preaches this to him. And it says, as they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, water. What prevents me from being baptized? He was ready. He had heard the words. And he said, listen, I want to identify with this. I'm all in. And look, here's some water. Why can't I be baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, then you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered his chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. And the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. And I believe that whenever we understand who Jesus is and what he has done for us, we want to go all in. When we really understand that Jesus Christ made it the only way possible for us to be in heaven forever, we want to give him our everything. And baptism is that first act of obedience. It's that first symbol that, yes, I'm a part of this. Yes, I believe in this, and I am all in on what's ahead of, of my life as far as God is concerned. I'm going to follow him wherever he leads, and I'm starting right now with baptism. I'm going to demonstrate that I'm his, that I belong to him, and I am a part of his family. The old me is gone, and there's a new me in Christ Jesus. This morning, if you've been baptized, that's what you were saying. That's what you did. 
And sometimes our memory of that time fades and, and we forget what it was at that time. But when we read about Scripture, when we study about baptism, when we understand again the gospel message, it can renew and refresh our spirit of what Christ has done for us. And so we as a church, as the church of Jesus Christ, we are people who have believed in Jesus, have put our full faith in him, and we have obediently followed him through baptism. Now, I, I want to say this. This is the way that, that we practice baptism here. And, and I recognize, and we've had conversations even yesterday, that we're a group of people who come from a lot of different backgrounds. The issue of baptism is obedience. The method of baptism might be different in different places. We practice baptism by immersion here. That means that we put people all the way under the water and raise them all the way back up because we believe that's the symbol of baptism in the scriptures. But we're not here to judge your obedience to the Lord. And I'm not going to tell my brothers across the street that they're doing baptism wrong and that it doesn't count. Now, I think they're doing it wrong. <laughs> they think I'm doing it wrong. And that's fine. I, I'm not upset over that. But I have to be faithful to the Word of God the best way I know how. And, and this is the way that it's been handed down to me. And this is the way that, that I believe the Scriptures support. And so that's the way we practice it. But don't feel like you're being judged if you've done it a different way. We, we all are following the Lord in obedience as best we know how. And if your heart was in obedience, whether you were sprinkled as a child, whether they just had a basin of water they put over your head, whatever your baptism looked like, it's a matter of being obedient to the Lord. Because he calls on us to go all in with him. And whatever that looked like in your journey, I want you to just be confident of that. Now, if any of you have not been baptized, I would love to talk with you about being baptized. But we have this church, and it came with a baptistry. <laughs> and right now, the scorpions use it more often than we do. <laughs> we always clean those out first, so don't let that scare you. But listen... It's a matter of saying publicly what's happened on your, in your heart. And it's a matter of just identifying with the family of God. And we encourage everyone to go through with it. If you're unwilling, and I've met a couple of these people, they were completely unwilling to be baptized. I have questions about that. Just being honest. You know, if you were unwilling to be baptized... I wonder if you really understand like this eunuch understood. Well, I'm all in. If Jesus is your Lord and he's, his instructions say to be baptized and you're unwilling, I question whether or not he's really your Lord. I'd love to talk to you about it and help you understand as best I understand. 
But that's what it means to be a part of the family of God. It's that you have gone all in with Jesus. And baptism is a public expression of that inward change of heart. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for your word that teaches us how to live for you. God, I thank you for your love that sent your son to die in our place. That even when we were undeserving, unrepentant, even when we were your enemies, you still died in our place. Jesus, I pray that we would go all in with you. That we would surrender our whole life to you. Not holding anything back. Thank you for the promise of your word that you have paid the price in full. That there is no part of it that's on our shoulders. There's no part of it that we can work out for ourselves. That it is not by works at all. Because you've loved us that much, we want to do everything we can for you and to build your kingdom and to invite others into the family of God. So help us to do that. Help us to be willing to walk through the word with others and show them the good news that we've received. For your glory and for your kingdom. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You respond to the Lord this morning. I, I, I believe as I look around the crowd, I, I know most of you are already Christians. You're already a member of the church of God. I hope that this was an encouragement to you, remembering what it means at the most fundamental level to belong to Christ's church. But maybe there's someone that you know of they don't belong. And maybe you need to take these scriptures and share them with them. And maybe God's laying that person on your heart right now. Let me encourage you just to be yielded, to be used by God. How can people know unless someone tells them? And you may have the best opportunity out of anyone else. So be ready to be used by the Lord. Be ready to share the gospel with someone. If you want to talk to me about anything, if you want to talk to me about baptism especially, I would love to talk to you about that. But anything at all, I'd be glad to pray with you this morning. But you respond to the Lord as he leads you, as Keetron leads us in song.